Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Susan Benish, is the founding director of the Dangerous Speech Project. And in this role, she has helped create a set of guidelines that helps policymakers and observers deduce the conditions under which inflammatory public rhetoric crosses the line to become a catalyst for major violence. We kick off with a discussion of what those criteria are and have a broader conversation about the role of language in inspiring violence. Susan has had a career as a journalist covering conflict in Latin America in the 1980s and 1990s, and then after experiencing some profound physical and emotional turbulence, she switched careers and became a human rights lawyer, working among other places at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. This is a very interesting conversation. I think you will love it. And I do want to note that the suggestion that I reach out to Susan came from a listener. So if there's someone out there that you think I should reach out to, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and send me a note. And as always, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And now here is my conversation with Susan. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Susan Benish. The Dangerous Speech Project is an effort to prevent or to find ways of at least diminishing episodes of violence that erupt between groups. The most unfortunately famous kind of intergroup violence is genocide. Of course, there are also massacres. There are what are called now in international law acts of genocide. There is ethnic cleansing. There are also attacks on a group of people by individuals. This is an enormous problem. We have been speaking for decades about preventing genocide and the phrase never again is very familiar. And of course, it is uh, thus far a, a betrayed or at least an unfulfilled oath. So why dangerous speech as opposed to, to hate speech? For several reasons, Mark. Um, first of all, hate speech is also a very familiar term. It's being used all over the world, particularly uh, in English-speaking contexts. But by now, that term has also been translated and is widely used in public discourse it is, however, um, little known in law, and um, there is no consensus definition of what hate speech is, either in law or in popular discourse. And in practice, uh, if you ask two different people to give you examples of hate speech or to define it, um, you are almost certainly going to get two different uh, understandings of what it means. Um, 
that is quite dangerous for freedom of expression. So that's one reason why I focus on a different category of speech. Another one is that uh, I'm interested in uh, preventing violence. And although some hate speech probably increases the chances of violence, not all of it does. So hate speech is a, is a more clearly defined, more specific category of speech, which I've defined as speech that um, has a special capacity to catalyze or to inspire intergroup violence. Now, do you subscribe to, I guess, what is typically the American ideal or notion that all speech is speech and should be protected no matter um, you know, how vile or abhorrent or its potential to incite violence? No, and neither does the United States Supreme Court. Uh, the The First Amendment of the United States is is um, is quite radical in its words and its meaning. It says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. However, as I often tell my students, Congress does merrily make law. Well, perhaps not merrily, but Congress makes laws. Indeed, abridging uh, speech in some cases. Um, for example, when it is uh, or seems likely that the speech will lead to uh, imminent lawless action, as the phrase goes in American constitutional law. So it is, in fact, illegal in the United States to speak to people um, in a context and in a way um, that is likely to lead to imminent lawless action. Have people been arrested for that here? No. Well, no, it isn't safe to say no. Uh, it's very rare, um, in part because it's difficult to catch someone in the act of making such a speech before uh, there is a result or, or, or not. However, um, many people have been arrested after making such speech. I suppose I really I misunderstood your question, Mark. I, I wondered. I thought you were asking, has someone um, uh, been arrested for such speech in a context in which it would have been prevented? Yes. Um, absolutely, people have been arrested after the fact. Uh, for example, there was a Mr. Brandenburg who gave a speech in a grassy field in Ohio, um, in which he called for. Uh, uh, in which rather than repeat his awful remarks, I'll just say he made, um, uh, violent, uh, racist and anti-Semitic remarks in that, uh, in that speech. And he called specifically for violence. Um, he was prosecuted and convicted under Ohio state law. And then he appealed the conviction and the case made it to the United States Supreme Court, which overturned his conviction, finding that uh, violence was not, uh, or, or imminent uh, lawless action was not probable immediately after Brandenburg spoke. So that case, Brandenburg v. Ohio, has become a very important one in the, uh, in the speech law of the United States. The catch, really, is that by the time such cases make it to courts, the courts know whether violence ensued or not, as they did in the case of Mr. Brandenburg. No one of his of his audience did react violently. 
Um, so looking around the world, does your dangerous speech project then monitor incidents of, of dangerous speech uh, around the world? And, and what do you do with that information? So first, may I, may I add uh, just as a bit of description uh, of dangerous speech? I've said that, it's, that it is speech that um, has a special capacity to inspire violence. You might wonder how we know that. And of course, it is, it is always an educated guess because it's a prediction about what might happen in the future. Um, we think that uh, what we now call the dangerous speech uh, analytical framework is a useful tool for making that guess in a, in a systematic and educated way. Why? Because we've studied many, many examples of speech preceding episodes of mass violence speech usually um, directed by civilian political leaders at audiences. And there are striking patterns that emerge from that speech. That is one of the most uh, important ideas that, uh, that the Dangerous Speech Project is trying to, uh, to spread among stakeholders and, and policymakers. So what are some of those patterns? Like, so the first, one, the first one is, is one that I'm sure you've already heard of. And that is dehumanization. It is all too common to refer to another group of people as uh, insects, as animals, as a cancer, as bacteria. In other words, as something that is less than human, not human, and that it is perfectly acceptable to hurt or to destroy. So that's the first pattern. Um, this seems to be important. This seems to do work uh, which is to uh, to move a group of people along a spectrum from a normal set of values to distorted values in which they believe that it is uh, acceptable or even necessary to do terrible harm or to condone the doing of terrible harm to another group of people. I mentioned the word necessary, and that leads us to another uh, what we call hallmark of dangerous speech, that has been nicknamed accusation in a mirror by a Hutu propaganda strategist. What is accusation in a mirror? That is when the dangerous speaker tells the audience that the other group, the out group, the others, are planning to do something awful to them. In other words, uh, to, to give you an example, this is a, a, a famous speech of Hitler in uh, January 1939, um, assuring Germans that Jews were planning to wipe out the German folk, German people. Um, we see this same, uh, this same rhetorical device, the same pattern in a dizzying variety of contexts, of historical periods, of cultures, of religions, uh, and of countries, of course. So, Accusation in a mirror seems particularly important because it is the collective analog of the one absolutely ironclad defense to homicide in virtually every legal system, which is self-defense. If you can persuade a group of people that they are facing a mortal threat at the hands of another group of people, then they will uh, condone terrible violence and they will feel that there's nothing wrong with doing so. Uh, there are also other hallmarks or patterns, but those are two of the of the main ones. So, uh, 
surveying the world today, are there any um, cases or incipient cases where where you see this hate speech starting to, or pardon me, this dangerous speech uh, starting to take hold? Like, where are you most concerned in the world right now? Uh, unfortunately, there are a great number of uh, countries in which uh, uh, in which dangerous speech can be found. Uh, I hesitate to list them because it would be difficult to include all of them and to, to explain them a bit, uh, without, without, uh, leaving out quite a few. I'm sure you can think of them and the audience can as well. Well, I would think like Burundi is, is obviously this kind of, uh, Burundi is where the international community is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Burundi is a, is a terribly distressing example for a number of reasons. One, um, it is already so far along in this process of uh, 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 community uh, norm shifting, so that a community will uh, uh, will accept and even endorse terrible violence. Of course, in Burundi, there is also uh, a history of such violence, which is another uh, factor that can make speech dangerous in its context. Um, it's also especially, especially heartbreaking and dispiriting because precisely because it's so familiar in Burundi, this happened, uh, relatively recently in Rwanda, in Burundi. Um, it is, it is, uh, uh, depressingly easy to predict. Um, so I, I, something um, of what you're saying uh, uh, now about the the effects of language on how we shape our perceptions of the other in, in a foreign policy space um, is has recently come to my attention and shaped the way I've I've written about the refugee crisis in the world. I'm not sure if, if you've heard of this, but I only recently came across this really interesting analysis that I take it as is quite old that um, cites what what the analyst, I can't remember his or her name, it was an academic, writing uh, about how, quote, inundation metaphors, that is using words like flood or flow or waves to refer to refugees, serves a dehumanizing purpose and has negative um, public policy consequences uh, for those refugees. And the uh, I think the example that he or she used was how uh, the American press referred to Asian immigration in like the 1930s and 40s. And it was totally fascinating to me. And and it's something that I had been doing, I think, unconsciously or subconsciously, not knowing the loaded history of those inundation metaphors. There are many examples of this, Mark. So uh, this is certainly a particularly compelling one. Um, referring to floods of migrants, um, is common in journalism in many countries, and uh, uh, that does two things. One, um, it's easy not to think of people as people when they are described as a physical force, like a like a flood, like like water. Um, and secondly, it's frightening, just as a tsunami or a, or a, or a flood would be frightening. Um, the idea of uh, uh, hundreds or thousands of people swarming or flowing or flooding across a border um, 
is is alarming and frightening. Um, so I'd love to learn a, a bit more about how you got into this this line of work. Uh, so where where are you from? Let's start at the beginning. Oh, well, I'm from New York City. Okay. Uh, and uh, did you grow up in like a politically or foreign policy active family? Or are you a lawyer? I take it. You have a lawyerly way of, of describing things. Oh dear, yes, I confess I am. <laughs> okay, I could I could sniff. <laughs> Although that out. I was a journalist okay. for quite some time before I went uh, back to school uh, to university and and uh, became a lawyer. So the journalist. So at some point, I think most journalists consider becoming lawyers, but <laughs> you you actually took the plunge. Um, I do it late, and specifically because of some of the journalism I was doing. Uh, so, so uh, how did you, I guess, first get into uh, interested in, in the world? What did your parents do when you were growing up? Did you grow up in Manhattan in New York City? I grew up in the Bronx. Um, my parents were uh, biochemists, professors of biochemistry, um, who did some very beautiful uh, and path-breaking research in, in um, hematology. They worked on hemoglobin. Um, that of course is not necessarily a foreign policy question, although, um, some of their research involved, uh, uh, rare hemoglobins, rare blood, which, um, has in turn allowed for some very interesting tracing of human migration. Uh, but I guess that's a bit of a different story. My parents were refugees. From where? Uh, my mother was a kinder transport. She um, was uh, a Berliner uh, uh, with as much nostalgia for her um, home city as I have for mine. I'm a proud New Yorker. She was a proud uh, Berlinerin, as, as you might say in German. Uh, and my father was from a town that is now known as Bielskopiawa, in, now in Poland. So my mother was a kinder transport. What was the, what is the kinder transport? Can kinder transport was a, um, was a project to uh, rescue um, Jewish children from Germany by bringing them out of Germany very, uh, very much at the last minute before World War II broke out. They were accepted by um, uh, British families and individual people um, um, since the, the children left alone. Only children were allowed to travel and their uh, families stayed behind and in most cases were killed. And were your grandparents then killed? My grandmother actually survived the entire war in hiding in Berlin. Did you ever meet her? No, no. She she barely survived, and she died in 1950. Uh, um, I guess how did uh, growing up the 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 child of children refugees affect how you saw or understood the world from an early age? Um. I'm just pausing because it isn't something that I thought about consciously. It wasn't until I was in law school. Well, of course I thought about my parents' background consciously, but I didn't say to myself, because of this background that I have, I ought to go into human rights work or into foreign policy work. Um, I was, however, enormously interested in 
the world outside the United States as long as far back as I can remember. Um, I was also uh, aware of what an easy and um, uh, comfortable and privileged upbringing I had. Um, quite early on, um, I went into journalism um, and became a, a reporter outside the United States. I worked principally in Latin America during um, the 1990s when uh, there were several wars still going on there. And what were, who are you reporting for in the 1990s? In Latin I, I worked for a newspaper which was then called the St. Petersburg Times and then for the Miami Herald. Uh, both papers, especially the Miami Herald, are keenly interested in Latin America and yes. in the Caribbean, which I also covered. Yeah. Definitely like the best Latin American coverage comes from the Miami Herald, I'd say, these days. And maybe the LA Times. And maybe the LA, yeah, I suppose the LA Times too. Um, uh, so I, so that was a an absolutely extraordinary job to be doing, particularly as a, you know, 22 year old. Well, so what conflict, like what, what issues and what conflict did you cover? Like I the, covered the El Salvador, Guatemala? Um, Especially in El Salvador and Guatemala, I covered the invasions of Panama, U.S. invasions of Panama and of Haiti. And I were you in the U.S. when were you in Panama when the U.S. invaded? No, I was in Quebec on vacation, and I'll never. I'm trying to going skiing, and I'll never forget turning on the TV to uh, look for the snow report and seeing an image that I instantly recognized as the shape of the country of Panama. And instantly knowing that that was the end of the ski vacation. And so then I, uh, of course, immediately headed for an airport and tried to get to Panama. Um, got as far as uh, San Jose, Costa Rica, still wearing my long underwear for skiing. And then I remember I uh, found a, a Catholic priest I knew who was trying to get back to his parish for Christmas. And we briefly discussed the possibility of... Um, climbing into his car after I dressed up as a nun was the, was the plan, um, in order to, to get into Panama and, uh, and be able to cover the story. In the end, I, I got to Panama in a slightly less adventuresome way and covered that invasion. So I'm, were you able to, did you have to like pass through a, a border and, and show your credentials to get into Panama? Because at the time, I mean, what, the, the president Noriega was under house arrest and, and I would imagine that like- No, civil, no, 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 Noriega, Noriega was hiding for a while. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, tell, tell the story because this is, this is, I think, before a lot of the, the time of a lot of the, the listeners out here. It's true. This was quite a long time ago. Uh, Noriega went into hiding and then there was a massive uh, manhunt to try to find him. Uh, uh, he eluded some many thousands of American soldiers hunting for him and took refuge in the papal nunciature in Panama City. Yes, that's right. And whereupon then, yeah. the uh, uh, American military dispatched, or didn't dispatch, I guess they, they had in place some psyops teams uh, that attempted to force Noriega out of the nunciature by making his life very unpleasant. Yeah, by blasting guns and roses, if I recall. Exactly. Goodness. Welcome to the jungle. Well, I remember, I mean, I was probably like seven years old at the time, but I was enough of a right. news junkie that I was following this pretty closely. And I just remember hearing like, welcome to the jungle over and over again. <laughs> well, 
Manuel Antonio Noriega with you, Mark Hurd. Welcome to the jungle over and over and over and over again at the maximum volume that the PSYOPs teams could uh, project into the nunciator. As you might imagine, eventually negotiations were conducted and uh, Noriega emerged and was then uh, sent to Miami and tried where he spent quite some time in a prison. I believe by now he's been released, if I'm not mistaken. In any case, so I covered the the um, invasion of Panama. Uh, I then covered Haiti for the best part of two years, um, which which was um, immensely sobering. Partly because it was a very rough period in Haitian history, many people were uh, were killed, um, and partly because Haiti uh, seems to be a country that. Uh, um, we used to say to one another among among the among the journalists working there, it's a country that, that kind of comes becomes part of you, comes inside you. You don't forget about it. You don't stop caring about it um, over time. So um, at a certain point, actually, I I uh, got sick and began losing weight. Uh, and went home to New York where my mother, professor in a medical school, you know, arranged for tests and, uh, and they couldn't find anything. And finally, uh, my mother took a long searching look at me and she said, I think you're just sad. Um, so that was something of a, of a, of a watershed moment. I, I, I thought quite a lot about what I had seen by then in five or six years of covering uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, and I, did you decide that, that this, this was not something that you could pursue and, and maintain a, a healthy and, and a psychologically healthy lifestyle? Well, more than that, I decided that, uh, uh, the tremendous idealism with which I had gone into journalism at age 19 um, uh, had maybe um, uh, that perhaps I'd outgrown it and needed to find another. Well, I, I damn it. It sounds like it damaged you. I mean, I, I know well, a number of, of people who are a bit younger than I, who are in their, mid to late twenties and covering conflicts in the middle East and are, are, are frankly just damaged. Well, they're, they're taking tremendous physical risks as well, I suppose. Yes. absolutely. Um, you know, I'm grateful to say that first of all, I've regained all that weight long since. Um, but I don't mean to be flippant. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for those experiences. Uh, I was also always keenly aware that uh, I could leave. For example, when I was in Haiti and things were were very rough, I would sometimes, or in El Salvador, let's say, I would go back to New York and my friends would say, oh, it must be so tough, you know, oh, you're courageous or something like that. Not at all. I had the enormous luxury of choosing to be in places uh, where people were suffering from Mm -hmm. uh, from war and, and, um, and so you, I mean, you're in Haiti, right? poverty I, and so I, forth. I never forgot. Yeah. And in fact, I even once wrote, I wrote a, a, a column, uh, uh, 
for the first of those two newspapers for the St. Petersburg Times. And I once wrote a column on the fact that I was aware that I could leave if I wanted to, in great contrast to many of the people I was writing about. And and this was, I imagine, just around the time of, of the so-called, uh, we're talking about inundation metaphors, like the, the, the uh, boat people from Haiti that would uh, wind up on the shores of, of Miami, right? In the early 1990s? Well, most of them didn't at all wind up uh, in Miami since it's it's um, too difficult to get to Miami. Uh, where where most of them ended up was Guantanamo. Guantanamo, that's right, in Cuba, Guantanamo, that's right. Yeah, that's um, when. And the and the U.S. would intercept them at sea. The United States Coast Guard would intercept the Haitian uh, fishing boats and take the people to uh, detention camps at Guantanamo. That's right. Uh, which again, which, which, uh, and, and, and what were they fleeing? Like, could you briefly describe like the political situation? Well, this was after Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, had been ousted as president, um, and was replaced by a military junta led by Raul Cedras. Um, that was a, um, a violent and, and murderous government. Um, the response from the international community was uh, to impose increasingly severe economic sanctions, um, um, first an embargo and then finally uh, even a, a, a flight ban. Um, as a result, the economy of Haiti, which was already in terrible shape, um, slid into into absolute disaster. For example, it was very difficult to get fuel. Um, there was, of course, a very uh, uh, active black market in in flugling, smuggling fuel across the border from the Dominican Republic. Um, but naturally, the fuel was very expensive. So the vast majority of Haitians who were and still are terribly poor. Um, use charcoal for cooking. Um, already uh, a terrible proportion of the country's forests had, had been decimated, had been cut down. And then during this period, even more trees were cut down by people who were absolutely desperate. Um, as you can imagine, with an embargo and flight ban and so forth, the, the, um, uh, the small uh, exports that Haiti had essentially collapsed. Um, so, so people were in an, an, a disastrous situation in which they, from which they couldn't really see any exit other than getting on one of these terribly dangerous and overcrowded boats. Uh, and so that was the context uh, of your reporting that led you to, to sort of have that sort of heart to heart with, with your mother. Um, and, uh, how did that, uh, is that when you decided to go to, to law school? Not quite. It, it made me wonder whether I could find um, a more effective way of, let's say, uh, diminishing some of the suffering that I had seen. Um, I considered going to medical school, in fact, uh, and I talked to a, a doctor who encouraged me, but also said, 
you could come back here and vaccinate babies, but if you, which is one of the things I said I wanted to do, I said, journalism didn't, didn't accomplish anything concrete. I'd like to do something concrete. So I talked about vaccinating babies. He said, you can vaccinate all the babies you want, but if you don't manage to make some structural change, they will quickly die of something else. Um, so I reflected on that. Then I went to see a human rights lawyer I met, I admired tremendously and said, Oh, I, I, I'd like to, to, um, be effective like you. So he laughed at me and pulled out a file of, uh, articles that I had published in the Miami Herald. And he said, you know, I'm using these, um, in the asylum cases that I'm bringing on behalf of Haitian refugees trying to get into the United States. You're in fact, much more useful as a journalist than you would be as a lawyer. Uh, I don't know whether that's true to this day, but I did decide to go to law school. So where did you go to law school? I went to Yale. Okay. Um, and how did that, uh, fr from Yale, how did you end up wanting to, or how did you end up pursuing a career in human rights law? Well, uh, the Rwanda genocide happened in the meantime. Um, I, like everyone else, had uh, followed it and been stunned and appalled by it. Um, I was I was distressed um, by the response of the United States government, uh, distressed and shocked at the response of the UN. Um, uh, these these ideas, these things stayed with me. Uh, and then while I was in law school, I went to, uh, to work as a, as a summer intern at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. I was a summer intern there as well, uh, yes. about a decade later. There you are. <laughs> uh, and so, there so, are... so what year? This is what, 95, 96? Was... No, no, it was uh, probably 99. 99, yeah, because it didn't even exist. Uh, that so, so what were you uh, doing? At the, were you working for the Office of the Prosecutor? Yes, and I was assigned to the, to the uh, trial team um, for the case against Radovan Karadzic. Oh, wow. Uh, and, there I, and there I was, um, uh, along with, of course, the, um, uh, the members of the team, uh, thinking about strategies for... Uh, the theories of prosecution. The joint so, criminal enterprise was, was your idea? No, no, no. <laughs> um, no, no so, so who are you working with there, actually? So I was there just a few years later in, in 2003 on the well, Milosevic team. J.J. Dutoy was the, was the chief of that team, as, okay. I, as I recall. Um, in any case, uh, I got to speech because um, I was, of course, reading a great deal about that war and on that trial team i was i was trying to think of what it was that people like kardic or like milosevic had actually done that made the difference that or made a difference in bringing about such uh such terrible violence you know and and we were um thinking about theories of command responsibility and how they could be applied to the civilian context as uh, civilian uh, superior liability. 
But I wondered whether, for example, by the time of the Srebrenica massacre, whether uh, Mladic, the effectively the military commander who ordered it, whether he really uh, needed uh, an order from a civilian. It seemed to me that by the time of Srebrenica, um, uh, terrible processes had already taken place, had already been put into motion um, uh, by civilian leaders speaking of course, not only speaking with megaphones, but communicating in various ways, including on television, to their own civilian populations, such that uh, other steps toward um, genocide and ethnic cleansing were much more easily taken. So I began to think about uh, the role of the speech of unscrupulous, influential civilian political leaders mm-hmm. and, and I, many years, yeah. no i remember um as an intern i remember uh, jeffrey nice who was the, the lead lawyer prosecuting milosevic in 2003 when i was there kind of took out all the interns and and made the the case i think you're making right now he said you know milosevic he's not a madman he's not a a um he, he's he's not like a psychopath he's just like you said an unscrupulous politician and a very effective politician who is able to invoke the right speeches use the right words to you know to 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 promote the genocide you know philip gorovich has a line in um his unforgettable book on the rwanda genocide we wish to inform you that tomorrow we'll be killed with our families um it says that genocide is a is a political tool um inciting genocide or speaking to people in such a way that they will tolerate uh, atrocities is also a political technique. It's much easier to turn one group of people against another group of people and to persuade your people that their troubles are caused by the other group of people. Much easier to do that than to actually solve some of their problems by paving a road, by installing electricity, by building a clinic, for example. So I don't think it's a coincidence that this kind of speech is um, used so, um, so commonly in so many different countries and contexts by a wide variety of terrible political leaders. And by the way, not only political leaders, other influential leaders uh, in societies also use this kind of speech to um, bind a group more tightly, and in particular to bind the group to themselves as leaders. Um, so, so how did you take the insights that you gained from the ICTY uh, and uh, apply them to, to start your own project, the, the Dangerous Speech Project? Well, first, I worked for many years in other things. I was um, I worked in in uh, in the refugee field. Actually, I um, uh, worked for Amnesty International USA and its refugee program. Um, I. Uh, uh, practiced uh, a bit as an asylum lawyer defending um, people facing deportation from the United States. And, and then I um, went to teach at uh, 
the law school of Georgetown University teaching law students how to uh, bring asylum cases. And as a part of that uh, two-year teaching stint, I was uh, required to write a scholarly article, write and publish a scholarly article. So that gave me the opportunity to reflect on uh, the ideas that I've been chewing on over over the previous years. Um, and this idea was was always was always rattling around in the back of my head, or maybe not in the back, but somewhere in the middle. So I began to work on it, and I wrote an article that I, I published um, in an international law journal. Um, critiquing the early jurisprudence of the um, ad hoc uh, uh, tribunals, the ICTY, in fact, but in particular, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the ICTR. So I was I was uh, paying close attention in that article and in my related studies to the jurisprudence on speech of those tribunals, the article was published, um, and I continued to think about these ideas, and then uh, I was um, appointed fellow at a think tank. The then director of the think tank said, what ideas have you got? What would you, uh, what would you like to think about and do if um, someone would, would pay you to, to, to think and work as you chose for a year? So that was an unbelievable question. I came up with with a couple of ideas actually, and ended up writing a grant proposal based on uh, on this idea of dangerous speech, and now have continued to work on it for about five years since then. Uh, great. Well, Susan, thank you so much for your time. It's my great pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to the listener who suggested I reach out to Susan, and thank you, of course, to Susan. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.